Welcome to the OC24 podcast, where we've taken some of the best talks and discussions from this year's 24-hour conference on global organised crime, which showcases some of the most interesting research into organised crime around the world. This episode is called Organised Crime, Human Trafficking, Contraband and Repression. Hello, everyone. Good afternoon, good morning and good evening. My name is Leo Lin. I am the director of Institute for Asian Crime and Security. And welcome to joining in the panel titled Organized Crime, Human Trafficking, Contraband and Repression. And joining me, we have four speakers, including me as, a, as the panelists. And I will be chairing for this panel at the same time. All right. Uh, since we're on time. I will give a little bit introduction about our panel, and then we will enter into the individual presentations. And at the end of the presentations, we will open floor for Q&A, and then that will be end of this, uh, the panel. So without further ado, I will do uh, the introdu introduction of this panel. So this panel, we will, uh, talk about various issues regarding human trafficking, drug trafficking, contraband and repression, as, as mentioned uh, in the title. And uh, Matthew Charles will present the findings of the study that explores organized crime and youth involvement in Colombia's Northern Coca region. And me, I will then uh, discuss and present the findings of the comparative study that examines the trafficking of women and girls in Southeast Asia through a human security perspective. And Maria uh, Zuppello, I hope, I'm hoping that I pronounce your name correctly. Uh, great, thank you. Uh, we'll discuss a recent study that sheds light on Latin America's under-recognized crime terror nexus by explaining how criminal and terrorist actors are using innovative methods to evade detection, uh, smuggle drugs, and use the proceeds to fund Islamic extremism through halal meat certification, uh, certification in Brazil. And our last but not the least speaker is Tatiana Santos de Souza. She will discuss the outcome of a study which analyzed 100, 170 cases of drug tra trafficking in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and found that drug repression policies actually favor organized crime. So I believe that all the audiences are very looking forward to our uh, four presentations. And let me introduce our first panelist, Matthew Charles. Dr. Matthew, he's a social and creative ethnographer with a specific interest in organized crime and cultural criminology. His work focuses, focuses mainly on the recruitment and participation of youth in criminal activity, particularly in Latin America, as well in armed conflict. So Matthew, uh, are ready? I'm ready. All right, please unmute yourself and the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm just going to share my screen.
Okay, so um, I'm going to jump straight into it. Uh, Ten minutes is, is not a lot of time to go into to go into detail. Uh, so my presentation is called Columbia's Community City and Country Lines and the Part-Time Child Traffickers uh, Who Run Them. Uh, I just wanted first to explain a little bit about the context. So the study um, was in the southwestern region of Cauca in Colombia and in four kind of towns or municipalities uh, specifically, in Miranda, Corinto, Torrevio, and Hambalo. Um, this area is, is uh, known for its marijuana cultivation. It's one of the um, the, the biggest areas in Colombia where, where marijuana is, is, is grown. Uh, and this area specifically is an indigenous reservation that belongs to the Nasa people. So it's kind of a semi-autonomous zone, uh, but it is controlled by dissident factions of, of the FARC guerrilla, as well as other groups who occasionally uh, try to make incursions into, into the region. This picture that you can see, locals call this kind of area of four towns, they call it Manhattan. Um, and, and, and that's because of these lights that you see. I mean, this, this really is the middle of nowhere. So at nighttime, it really should be dark, uh, but it's not. These lights kind of light up the, the, the rural uh, skyline. Uh, and these lights that you see are all uh, marijuana plantations. They're all marijuana uh, cultivations. And so it, it's known as, as Manhattan or Little Manhattan by, by the people that, uh, that live there. Um, but as I say, this is a place that really is controlled by dissident factions of the FARC. Uh, the number of hectares of, of marijuana crops has uh, increased, um, is increasing, has been increasing since the, the peace process of 2016. This is an area with uh, more than 6,000 farmers growing marijuana and 70% of the population living off it. They grow a particular brand of marijuana, a particular breed, if you like, called Creepy, which is uh, particularly uh, potent. But this area is also one of Colombia's um, poorest. So this is not um, just a bunch of criminals doing it because that they can and because they want to. Um, for these farmers, for these families, this is about livelihood. It's about um, survival. So it's important to recognize that for, for children growing up in this region, marijuana cultivation and, and trafficking has been uh, normalized. It's, it's kind of part of the routine. Um, so crime is not only a source of income for their families, but it also represents the only real opportunity uh, for them and criminal groups, rather than kind of uh, being oppressive or vehicles for oppression, uh, become opportunities uh, to, escape, to escape that kind of poverty um, and inequality. Joining a, uh, an armed group or working in marijuana uh, becomes a life, a life choice. Um, and, you know, alternative imaginaries that we might see in other areas um, just uh, are not seen as realistic or uh, attainable by, by young people living in this community, which creates kind of negative identities uh, and even feelings of low, low self-efficacy. So that gives you a, a kind of brief overview of the, of the context of, of where the study took place. Um, I'm not going to talk much about the method. Um, I could, but I think that would be a whole different um, uh, presentation. Uh, the method that we used was creative ethnography, uh, life writing in particular. So it was a participatory project. 25 young people between the ages of uh, nine and 18 wrote stories uh, about their lives over the course of three months in, in 10 workshops. But I think that, you know, there's probably two things I want to say about the method about creative ethnography in particular. Uh, um, participatory projects, really, it's about the... Um, it's about the generation of knowledge rather than, than the, the extraction. And also I think the, the other point to make is that uh, for us as researchers, the whole point was to kind of 
uh, achieve a deeper understanding of, of what drives youth offending in these uh, contract in in these contexts of protracted violence, but simultaneously this type of participatory project allows uh, allowed the young participants to explore their own lives uh, and to, to reflect on their own lives and their own decisions as well. Because at the end of the day, participatory projects are all a, a based in social research and are all about trying to inspire and provoke some kind of of change. Uh, so this is the kind of uh, trafficking structure that we uh, uh, that we uncovered together. Um, in Spanish, it's referred to as microtrafico, which is it's basically domestic trafficking. So this is the kind of sale of uh, marijuana in the local community. These are not the kind of uh, you know massive cocaine trafficking rings that we see to Mexico and uh, the United States and, and further afield. This is about selling drugs in the local community, and this is something that's increased massively in Colombia since 2016, uh, because uh, resurgent armed groups or armed groups trying to reassert themselves in, in, within kind of Colombia's post-conflict or within Colombia's peace process need access to cash quickly. Uh, and this is quite a lucrative uh, you know, way of, of doing that. So what we saw is that from marijuana plantations, young children and young people uh, move the drugs to the plazas, the plazas have, there's a head of a plaza, there may be drug cooks where they make the, the marijuana cigarettes, sometimes it's mixed with cocaine as well and, and sold as what they call bazooko here. Um, and then there are dealers and each dealer, these are all children and young people, are responsible for moving and selling those drugs to particular what they call mini plazas, which will be um, individual bars, schools, uh, maybe particular villages or, or neighborhoods, because this, this is really is a, a, a rural community. And then others will be responsible for moving uh, the drugs to kind of major transportation uh, uh, points so the drugs can move out further afield through Colombia. Um, and within that, then, we identified three levels of, of route. Uh, uh, and this really is kind of based in the, the UK experience of, of county lines, um, where vulnerable youths are used by uh, organised criminal structures in the bigger cities in the UK to move drugs out to the smaller um, coastal towns. And we identified then three, three levels. So first of all, the kind of community route. So there were young people uh, working within their, within their towns, within their villages, or sometimes between them, moving and selling drugs. Um, then they would move up to the, the, the bigger cities nearby, um, having to travel there on bus. And then even further afield um, to really entry points to the international trafficking market. So, you know, the, these bus hours, these bus uh, routes are quite long, maybe six, uh, seven, eight hours. Um, and they will leave the drugs there and it would then be the responsibility of someone else to move them down, uh, down the rivers in, in the case of getting to Venezuela or Brazil. Um, and then uh, um, road transportation through Ecuador down to Chile and Argentina. Some of the, some of the young people in the study had been to Brazil, but mostly, um, the, the, you know, they, they get to the cities, they leave the drugs at these kind of entry points and they're shipped by, by other people um, along the international lines. Uh, and this is progressive. So the young people, uh, when they start out, will work in the community. Um, and as they gain more trust, more experience, they'll move up to, to the other levels. Um, what were some of the stories? This list on here is uh, in no way exhaustive. These are just some of the, the key themes. Um, there wasn't really a universal experience, let's say, um, but there were definitely some common themes. And the vast majority, if not all of them, um, do this part time. 
Um, these are young people that still go to school, still study. Uh, most of them do quite well at school. Um, and I think this is, you know, this changes our notion of vulnerability because these are not the kind of vulnerable young kids that we might normally expect to become involved in trafficking routes. They also were very clear that this was, you know, their decision. It was about their future. Um, it was about guaranteeing uh, security for themselves. This was not something that they said they were forced to do at least by an individual or by a group of individuals, um, but they, you know, they may have been forced to do it by the kind of socioeconomic uh, circumstances in which they live. Obviously, um, many had family ties. We saw at the beginning, you know, seventy percent of the uh, of the local economy kind of work in this industry. So those those with family ties found it much easier uh, to move in. There are also opportunities for leadership. Um, one one of the things that we we, we found out was how um, armed groups will kind of recruit um, young kind of leaders, that the brightest uh, and not necessarily the most vulnerable, but the brightest, those that can galvanize a following and that can be trusted to, to run a small group. I mean, some of these classes are being run by 14, 15 year olds who has a small army of you know, 10 and 11 year olds. And there was definitely, they saw it as a trajectory. They saw that the chance to progress up the criminal ladder, if you like, um, but they didn't see it as, as something they wanted to stay within, which I think is quite interested, interesting. Many of them saw this as an opportunity to save money to be able to go to university because otherwise they wouldn't be able to study because they don't have the resources. So I think that's, again, that's another interesting factor that is not necessarily one that we've seen before when we think about young people and, and, and drug trafficking. And there were definitely gendered experiences. So um, girls tended to, to be more exploited, uh, certainly sexually exploited. Um, they would be befriended by older boys who would um, ask them to move thing, you know, move products from A to B. And then uh, girls would be used to seduce other boys um, and bring them into the network as well. <clears throat> so what are the implications of this? Well, I think there's an opportunity to learn from this kind of Global South experience uh, of youth and youth on the margins. Um, we have to recognize that there isn't a universal childhood, uh, a notion of childhood or youth experience, but instead uh, multiple youths. Uh, and also I think it's important to say that this is not just exploitation, how it might be represented sometimes in the UK, for example, or certainly in the global North. Um, it is progressively exploitative, but I think that's different and that's something that maybe we can talk about later. Uh, but to dismiss this as simple exploitation is to, in my view, is to deny the structural context in which these crimes um, are committed. We have to recognize the agency of these young people and perhaps therefore it then redefines um, our understanding of vulnerability as a more active concept in which young traffickers are not perceived as victims nor as dangerous criminals but kind of somewhere in between doing the best that they can to survive in the circumstances that they that they are living in. So it recasts criminality not as a rational choice if you like but as a means to escape the, the, the precarity which defines uh, the, their experience of youth on the margins of Colombia. Um, <clears throat> anthropologist Henrik Weid displies, describes the process of, of uh, social navigation, which is roughly the kind of relationship between ourselves and the environment and, and how the, all of that interacts. Um, and, and, and he would say that these young people are trying to 
uh, escape the defining social structures in which they find themselves in order to gain uh, viable life choices. So in context of, of protracted violence and criminal governance, which these, which these young people are living in, um, this navigation becomes a navigation of crime generative influences because that is what they are surrounded by. The social bonds which normally anchor us conventional society are replaced by um, kind of you know, loose criminal alternatives, which conversely pull the, the individual, pull the young person deeper into the norms and practices of the, of the underworld. So it's important to differentiate them between capacity and capability, because um, if we think that the former refers to the kind of internal arsenal that we have to understand our surroundings, and the capability is the means of achieving um, that change that we may seek, then these young people do understand their world and they are taking options to improve the situation, but they lack the capability, they lack the resources to really do anything um, effective. And so the only option that they have or that they perceive that they have is to succumb to the opportunities provided in the underworld. Um, so if their aim is to escape the dominant social structures in some kind of weird paradox, um, they end up actually becoming part of, uh, part of them. And I think that is my 10 minutes. Thank you. Thank you very much, Matthew, for your wonderful, uh, insightful presentation and the case study of Coca Colombia. And I definitely, I definitely see that it is uh, increasing risks and vulnerable vulnerability for uh, yeah for the youth and, and kids in the area. And I think you addressed a number of key points including the lines and social navigation and uh, the uh, stories of those kids. Well, thank you for, for your uh, sharing. And I guess I, I am up the next one to present. So let me share my screen. So for my presentation, uh, the, uh, the paper is titled Human Trafficking in Southeast Asia, a comparative case study from a family's human security perspective. And what this is, I think this might be a little bit uh, theoretical, but let's see uh, how it goes. And then uh, it is a, uh, a preliminary study. Uh, so uh, I'm still doing the research. So I will share with you my findings so far. This is the outline. Uh, I will do introduction followed by literature review and research question cases, methods, results and findings, and policy implications, and a conclusion. For the introduction, uh, human trafficking is nothing new, and there are long time battle between governments and human traffickers across the Southeast, Southeast Asia region, even during the COVID-19 pandemic. And there are source and destination countries in Southeast Asia, for example, Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, and Indonesia are considered uh, as major source countries for, for human trafficking. Destination countries include Malaysia, Thailand, victims from Cambodia, Laos, and VMR, for example, were trafficked to Thailand. And Malaysia also has been a destination for Indonesia and Vietnam. What the bottom line here is Maybe it, it's a little bit complicated uh, about the routes, but human trafficking in the region has been and probably will continue to be a critical human security issue uh, in the future. So this is the map for you to get sense. 
a little bit literature review. I don't want to spend too much time here because we only have 10 minutes, but it's a, well, the literature says that human security is a theoretical perspective. Many regional and international organizations have, have recognized the concept and uh, implemented the, the, uh, and stressed the, important, the importance of human security. However, there's no real consensus so far that what, what can or should constitute the focus of human security studies. Well, essentially, human security is a people-centered model aiming to address security at individual level and the family's, family's perspective is important in human security because women and children are often victims of violence and crime, which is understandable. And various scholars have argued that women and children suffer from unequal access to resources, services, and opportunity, not only in the region of Southeast Asia, but other places as well. As well. Uh, Matthew, Matthew, um, Matthew talked about Global South, and then that uh, that's a, I think that's a, the similar situation out there as well. And the human trafficking issue in Southeast Asia has three general features. The first is cross-border. Many of the victims from those countries were trafficked to neighboring countries, as I mentioned at the beginning of, uh, of my presentation. The second is complex. The TIP report, the Trafficking Persons Report, also pointed out that human trafficking is still a massive problem in the region, which connects with different types of crime. And the third feature is underreported rate of cases. And I did a prior research resulting that human trafficking has been underreported, underdetected, and underprosecuted. And the crimes remain hidden and the fear of intimidation oppressed the victims. For my research question in this paper is, what are the general conditions and individual conditions of human uh, trafficking patterns in Southeast Asia? I tried to uh, identify the general conditions and individual conditions and compare and contrast uh, the findings. The same map again, and this time it shows the case studies, uh, the cases that I uh, selected. So there are four cases, Cambodia, Indonesia, Laos, and Vietnam. These four countries were selected because those four countries are considered source countries for human, secure, human trafficking in the region. And this just, uh, this uh, table is just to give you a sense about the number of victims versus its population in each country. Methods, um, I think I'll be, I'll be doing just like Matthew, I will just uh, do it very quickly uh, to skip it, or well, not skip it, but just introduce it very quickly. So this is a qualitative comparative case studies to analyze differences between two or more groups on the dependent variables. And uh, the um, data were collected, basically secondary sources analysis because of my, uh, my goal is to uh, compare and contrast the uh, differences between the general conditions and individual conditions that I identify from the research. So the data were collected from government reports, uh, the tip reports, newspapers, and NGO reports, et cetera. 
And in this research, I adopted indicators provided by the human security concept emphasizing gender. I used two level indicators, um, as I mentioned, general and individual conditions. The general conditions here is defined as the common patterns that can be observed from the case studies. And individual conditions here in this paper is defined as the individual observable patterns that can that are different from other cases. When total, so far I used 12 country profile documents as pieces of evidence. And then I coded the documents uh, using software, uh, computer assistance software and to, uh, to analyze the codes. And for the codings, uh, including uh, sex trafficking, forced labor, and for the gender indicators, uh, include, include men, male, boys, women, female, and girls. But in total, there, were, there are 797 codes were generated from uh, the documents for analysis. And it shows the uh, coded document portrait just for you to get a sense uh, about the uh, proportion of the codes and where it goes. And the second figure shows the, uh, the map, the relationship between uh, different indicators. Results and findings. Well, for general conditions, the, the result shows that between 2018 and 2020, sex trafficking and female-related trafficking have more, than, more counts than forced labor and male-related trafficking issues. It indicates that female-related related sex trafficking is the major issue in Cambodia, Laos, Indonesia, and Vietnam, which is not surprising. And the results also indicate that uh, female-related terms, uh, women, female, and girls, have a stronger connection with both sex trafficking and forced labor. So this is the result. It's a, uh, there are three figures here, we're showing two. Uh, so here is the uh, result for sex trafficking and forced labor. And the figure four, uh, it's about female related terms in general. So you can see uh, the uh, different um, trends that we can observe from the analysis. So in general, in individual conditions, um, there are, the results show that there's an increase in both sex trafficking and forced labor in the case of Cambodia and no major increase was observed in sex trafficking for Indonesia. There's no major increase in sex, sex trafficking for Laos and major decrease was observed in forced labor. For Vietnam, no major increase or decrease were observed in sex trafficking and forced labor. And also the uh, patterns of using female related terms and capture the, uh, to capture the development of each case. Uh, the result shows that there's an increase from 2018 to 2020 in the case of Cambodia and for Indonesia, an increase was observed from 2018 and 2020. For Laos, a dramatic decrease in female related terms. And finally, for Vietnam, 
no major changes were observed. Some discussions uh, based on the findings. First, in general, female-related trafficking issues are the primary concern in the four cases, and female-related sex trafficking is a particular concern, especially for Cambodia and Laos, where an increase in the use of the terms were observed. And third, female-related forced labor is an important issue, especially for Cambodia and Indonesia. Another development that we can observe in the case of Laos is that there was a sudden uh, decrease in both uh, in the use of the term forced labor and the female related terms. What well, it suggests that in Laos, female related forced labor has become a less significant issue than if compared to sex trafficking. And finally, compared to the use of female related terms in all four cases, there was increase in using those terms in Cambodia and Indonesia, whereas a general decrease was observed in Laos. Well, it sounds a little bit overwhelming, but this result indicates no common trend or development in female-related trafficking issues were uh, identified among the four cases. That means they have, at the individual level, they are very different. And also there's a gap between the general conditions and individual conditions. Well, the general conditions shows that sex trafficking is most prominent issue if compared with the uh, forced labor. However, it did not necessarily capture the development of the individual case. For example, in Cambodia and Indonesia, female-related forced labor is also a critical issue that has increased its importance over the years. However, the development cannot be observed in the general condition. So implications that uh, for each case, for Cambodia, the trafficking of women and girls is getting worse and many of the trafficking women occur in entertainment establishment. And however, the Cambodia government did not put enough effort in, into addressing the issue. In Indonesia, the policy, policy implication is that the trafficking of women and girls for forced labor has become a more important issue over, over the past years. And traffickers commonly use fraud and coercion during trafficking. However, there was a lack of efficient identification measure for victims. In Laos, many female workers have faced the risk of becoming human trafficking victims because the Laos government imposed the ban for workers who do not possess enough professional skills. And finally, for Vietnam, female trafficking was involved with its labor market. Most labor firms are affiliated with state-owned enterprises. And female workers seeking overseas jobs were recruited by illegal brokers who charged either higher fee, making victims face higher risk and of debt-based coercion of forced labor sex trafficking. So here, I think um, Matthew also talked about that in his presentation, the risk factors is our well, important concern in this case as well. In conclusion, the general conditions of the four countries uh, the result shows that sex trafficking against female victims is the major issue. And in individual conditions, each case 
has its unique patterns. Overall, despite that female-related trafficking is the major concern, there was no major trend in female-related trafficking issues among the four cases. So the bottom line is the result of this study uh, implied that over-generalization of female-related human trafficking in South, Southeast Asia would cause a blind spot and misleading information with a potential risk about the actual situation that each country is faced with. Therefore, as a researcher and policymaker, uh, we should be prudent and careful when looking at the big picture of human trafficking, women, uh, girls, and overall in the region. And should, should pay more attention to the state level situation and investigate the individual country's development rather than making a general uh, assumption, analysis, and conclusion at the regional level. All right, uh, our next speaker is Maria. Maria, right? Yes. Okay, great. So Maria uh, Zuppello is an investigative reporter and yes. an expert on crime terror nexus in Latin America. Also a TV producer and video journalist spent over uh, 20 years of experience. Very impressive background and experience. So um, I'm very looking forward to uh, your presentation. I believe that uh, the, all the audience, all the audience uh, is also uh, looking forward to uh, your uh, point of view. So without further ado, so the floor is yours. Thank you so much. I'm gonna share my screen. Okay, I feel that everyone, okay. Uh, good evening, good afternoon, good morning, depending on where you live. We, I'm going to speak tonight about real meat certification as a new way to smuggle drugs and fund terrorism with a specific focus on Brazil. Um, first of all, I want to highlight that this talk has absolutely nothing against the halal industry. On the contrary, halal professionals can be better understand what kind of weaknesses in the halal chain the bad actors can exploit. So let's start with my research that you can find partially in my book, uh, the crime terror nexus in Latin America, tropical jihad. What exactly does the word halal mean? It means lawful and uh, permitted. We have the same ideas in other religions, such as Judaism, um, where they have the word kosher. And halal always comes with its opposite, haram. Uh, just a few uh, comments about the halal certification. Halal certification usually applies to meat and uh, hundreds of other non-food products. And we can define a halal product when it's formulated and produced with ingredients and tools that are accepted under Islamic law. What is very important to outline is that all halal certification bodies basically exam examine all the halal food production, from the slaughtering in case of meat until uh, to the last, uh, to the final um, part, which is the transportation, distribution, and cargo placement. It's very important um, for the story that I'm going 
to uh, report right now. Uh, the global market value of halal certification is huge because Muslims account for 1.9 billion of the world's customers and they're really growing. And halal certification is recognized worldwide in over 150 countries. Uh, as a market worth uh, over three trillion per year. So it's really a huge market. Why Brazil? Why Brazil is so important? Because Brazil is the world's largest supply of halal food, particularly beef. Uh, Brazil is also the world's largest meat exporter. But Brazil, as Latin America's largest Muslim community, which is um, estimated to be between 400,000 and 800,000 Muslims. However, Brazil is one of the world's largest cocaine exporters, not a producer. Just to, to give you an idea, only in 2019, a Brazilian authority seized more than 100 tons of cocaine. And also for years, Brazil has served as a crossroad for Islamic terrorist financing, uh, usually via drug trafficking and money laundering, via the investigation uh, about Hezbollah, Al Qaeda, and also ISIS. And uh, because in Brazil, uh, we have uh, a unique phenomenon that are Islamic terrorists who later joined the uh, organized crime group, like P PCC, for example, in jail. This is the case of uh, this guy, uh, Fernando Cabral, who was arrested in the hashtag operation in Brazil in 2016. Uh, why does the market have the potential to attract terrorists and criminals? What are its weaknesses? Uh, first of all, the reduced detection risk because frozen meat hides very well the smell of cocaine. For the scanners, it's very hard, it's very difficult to uh, find uh, cocaine uh, below the texture of, uh, of, uh, of meat. Also because it's very easy to produce fake uh, invoices. Don't forget that religious organizations in Brazil don't pay taxes. And usually the the, all the certification body, they are just four, uh, correspond that are located in the same buildings that the religious organization. organization. And, um, and most of the time, uh, the people that work for the religious organizations also work for the um, uh, certification body. And also because we have a huge risk of labor exploitation of Muslim migrants. Brazil is not a Muslim country, so it needs to import migrants. There is a, a big migration of Muslim migrants, but there are a lot of foreign migrants working that already filed a lot of lawsuits for the bad conditions of work in uh, the Brazilian plants. We have an uh, um, uh, iconic case that really sum up uh, all the problems that come uh, with the uh, halal certification. This is called the Algerian cocaine gate. This guide is the Algerian Pablo Escobar, Kamil Shiki, Aka El Bushi. Uh, um, uh, Algerian authorities arrested him, his brothers, and many business associates. A week after seizing at the port of Oran, 701 kilos of cocaine in May, uh, or May 2018. What is interesting in this story is that the drugs, cocaine, were concealed in red box, red boxes uh, labeled halal beef. And here, not, not here in the next slide, uh, what is important to highlight is that uh, since 2007, Kamel Shiki had an exclusive contract to import Minerva Foods halal meat into Algeria. Uh, Minerva Foods is a Brazilian company. 
But in 2015, the state-owned uh, Saudi Agricultural and Livestock Investment, SALIC, bought uh, approximately 20% stake. And uh, today we are around 35%. Uh, Minerva Food, Foods also operates in Colombia and Paraguay. Uh, this uh, cargo uh, full of uh, loaded with cocaine left Santos in Brazil on April 27, uh, just stopped at Las Palmas in the Canary Islands, and then went to Spain, Valencia. Here, the Spanish authorities uh, discovered the, the cocaine and decided to reship um, the cocaine of the mega mercury another ship to to see the final destination which was uh, um, oran in algeria why this this oh, why this seizure is interesting first of all for the localization this uh, coastline between casablanca and algiers um, is called now golden arch for drug traffickers why not only because it's uh, um, for its proximity uh, to europe which is a very um, lucrative market but also because the sile region is becoming more dangerous uh, because of the terrorism uh, the terrorist threats this is the seizures as you can see the boxes the red boxes with minerva minerva foods part of the drug was intended for the lucrative saudi arabia market while another part was intended for the european market uh, um, this part uh, should be uh, transferred by the Italian Drangheta with the possible assistance of the Camorra. Uh, Drangheta is very powerful everywhere. Also in Algeria, we have uh, um, an operation called Criterion 2 in 2016. Um, the Italian authorities arrested 16 people. The big boss, uh, mobster was Nicolino Granderati. This guy was able to invest more than 2,000 million euros in real estate and to get about guarantees of 5 million euros. So you can imagine the scope of the, of the, of the story. Uh, according to the Spanish newspaper ABC, Algerian religious authority before the seizure uh, were dissatisfied with the type of meat cut imported by Kamil Shiki. An imam was hired to certify that this export have received the halal cut type of meat quickly, which uh, according to investigators implies that there were accomplices in the halal certified authorities in Brazil that didn't control the quality um, of the um, meat that uh, Minerva Food was exporting. Why Kamel Chiki was involved in, in this big scheme? He's a powerful man, uh, he, he made a fortune on real estate, but with this money, he funded a lot of mosques, over 200 just uh, in his uh, hometown, Lakdaria, and a lot of Quranic schools. And if you're gonna uh, dig, uh, uh, inside his story, his family story, it's amazing because one of his cousins, Omar, was in the Islamic Salvation Front leadership in Lakdaria, and he was also one of the founding members of the Armed Islamic Group GIA. Kamel's old brother, who is now in custody, arrested with him, 
has ties to the GIE and the family butcher shop in 1994 was closed by um, uh, Algerian gendarmerie because they suspected that its owner was supplying the GIE. As you know, the GIE is apparently over, but actually, uh, for example, uh, these days we have a trial of uh, 13 November, uh, the, the leadership uh, of, the, of the attacker um, was operating from Syria, and we had two people, actually, uh, former GIA terrorists, so it's a very important um, group, uh, a ter terrorist group. Uh, we already have evidence that Ndrangheta is collaborating with uh, Islamic group. Uh, the Italian Operation Stammer in 2017 un uncovered a guy, a, a Lebanese guy living uh, based in Italy that collected money for Ndrangheta families for paying um, uh, Colombian sellers and then provided uh, services of money laundering in Lebanon for the same family and drunketa families. Let's go back to the 2018, the same year than Kamel Shiki seizure. We are in Santos, the same port. This time, two months later, police seized 448 kilos of cocaine, final destination was China, the stopover was in Europe. What is interesting that the drug was uh, concealed in carton box with a meat certified by the FAMBRAS, Federation of Muslim Associations of Brazil. Okay, here we have some pictures. Here you can see the seal, here the meat, the meat. Here, this is the number that the criminal uh, put it for to signalize. Here, this is the brick of cocaine. Okay, good. Fambras, Fambras Alal, and Fambras are more or less the same thing. Uh, and we have a, a guy that has been flagged by US authority. This guy is Shalik Taleb Khaled Takeldin or Khaled Razek Takeldin. He was a Dava uh, theological director of Fambras and is currently working for Fambras Alal. Why this guy is significant? We have uh, uh, the testimony, the congressional testimony of Roger Noriega, who is the former U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemisphere Affairs, who declared that in 1995, Takel Din hosted Osama bin Laden and 9-11 mastermind Khalid Sheikh Mohammed of the Triple Board. But um, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, according to Roger Noriega, is one of uh, uh, Moshe Rabani, principal collaborators in the America, linked to members of a Treasury Department designated Tri-Border Network that provide financial and logistical support to Hezbollah in Lebanon. So these guys currently working for this certification body. But it's not the only one that has been flagged by international investigation. Here you can see a Shia cleric, Taleb Hossein Al-Kazrai, um, uh, is the owner of the Alimentos Alal Brasil, which is um, uh, the certification, Alal certification branch of the Arrasala Islamic Center. Uh, according to the Argentinian prosecutor Alberto Nisman, Al-Kazrai is a prominent Iranian operative that um, is linked to high officials in Iran that uh, uh, worked as co-conspirators of the army attack in Argentina in 1994. But we also have uh, working for the same uh, 
center that Karzai, another guy, Bill Almosen Weber, is a US designated chief representative of Hezbollah in South America. Uh, he is a fundraiser for Hezbollah, and he also worked uh, uh, and overseen Hezbollah's counterintelligence activity in the tri-border area. Um, in this picture, we can see him. Oh, yes, sorry right. to interrupt. Yes. Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt. So uh, I'm controlling the time as well. Uh, so uh, we're passing uh, like 13 minutes. Yes, I, I minutes. finished. Yes. I finished. Okay, great. Well, just a reminder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I, I, I have my watch. This is, it's here with the grandson of uh, um, former Ayatollah Khomeini. And also in the 90s, 9-11 mastermind Khalid Sheikh Mohammed went to Brazil to... Um, to, to, to set up an import export business of frozen halal chicken, because it was the Al Qaeda way uh, to move operatives and launder money. To sum up, what kind of recommendations or countermeasures? First of all, we need to increase the exchange of financial information between Brazil and Europe and Brazil and the United States. We have uh, some institutions like you are just that can work better. Second, we need to uh, improve the issue of scanners. In Brazil, the scanners in the ports are managed by private companies, which means that uh, these companies are high risk to be infiltrated by bad actors. And finally, we need, this is a recommendation for the halal professionals, to better unificate the halal chain. It means that uh, we need more control in the last part of the process, which is the cargo placement and the distribution. Thank you so much. I want just to give you my data. This is my mail, mariazuppello.gmail.com, and you can follow me on Twitter. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Maria, for your presentation on Hela market and the uh, drug trafficking across the border. And in the interest of time, because we want to save time for Q&A, um, the next speaker is Tatiana uh, Santos de Souza. Uh, she's an economist, uh, economist graduated from the uh, uh, Pontifical Catholic University of Rio Grande do Sul, Brazil. And Tatiana, are you ready? If you're okay, the floor is yours. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity and organization of the Global Initiative. It is a rich and important moment because, as we know, it's very difficult to research about organized crime. It is a subject of difficult access to information and, above all, scarce data. My name is Tatiana Santos de Souza. I have a PhD in economics. My field is drug economics. I've been studying this topic for 11 years. I took my master's and PhD at the Economics Institute at University of Campinas, which is a slightly different school of economic thought because they teach and promote research from the heterodox economic approach. So I was able to benefit from our realistic methodologies and analysis that were less based on the classic economic models. So during my master's, I analyzed uh, the demand and supplies of this illicit economy. 
I observed many economic similarities between transnational crime organizations and formal companies. In addition, I highlighted some aspects commonly noted in organized crime, such as the importance of innovation, creativity, flexibility, and adaptation of these economic agents. I emphasize those aspects because they were crucial for the study that I did in sequence for my PG. In my dissertation, I specifically researched the impact of policies to repress drug trafficking in the state of Sao Paulo, the Brazilian region with the highest absolute number of people in prison. That is what I'm going to talk about today. I conducted a survey and collected data. The database comprised 107 court sentences of drug trafficking convictions in the state of Sao Paulo in 2019. My initial focus was not specifically evaluating organized crime. My goal was to contribute with information about the economic aspects that encompassed the illegal drug economy. Therefore, I studied the repression action of public institutions, the flow of illicit goods, and the actions of illegal agents. I verified many information and results by researching court sentence, but I will explain some of them. 86% of the defendants were men. 82% of the defense had a maximum of 100 reais or less than $18. Only 3.4% carried firearms. 2.1% committed other crimes. There were no cases murder or other violent crimes associated with the crime of drug trafficking. These initial data indicate two points. First, most of the convicted individuals working with illegal drug trafficking in Sao Paulo do not match the profile of the popular imagination of the typical drug dealer. Second, the role, drug, the role of drug traffickers in Sao Paulo may imply a different, less violent dynamic. In fact, as we will see below, both points are confirmed in this study. I also highlighted another fact. 50.6% of the people incarcerated were first-time offenders and 49.4% of people jailed were persistent offenders. From the group of the first-time offenders, only 3.4% were related to organized crime. On the other hand, from the group of persistent offenders, 15.5% were related to organized crime. The only criminal group, criminal group mentioned in the trials was the first command of the capital, PCC. Or PCC. The first command of the capital is a hegemonic criminal organization in the state of Sao Paulo. It emerged 
as a prison faction inside prisons in the 90s. Currently, they were the only drug suppliers in the state of Sao Paulo. The PCC disputes other markets for Brazil and other countries, especially Paraguay. There are members of the group uh, in different parts of the world and they have transnational characteristic organizations. The group primarily sells uh, natural and semi-synthetic drugs such as marijuana, cocaine and crack. The PCC is also active in other types of crime such as cargo theft. There are several uh, legal and illegal business performed by the members of the group. Regarding the illegal drug market, PCC is the main supplier to the wholesale market. The PCC regulates the retail market, keeping prices low and directing the dealer's work. This implies a different dynamic of drug trafficking when compared to other regions in Brazil. The production chain is diffuse. There, are, uh, there is a manager, there are several couriers, there are several sales, there are people who work in accounting, there are people who only stock the products. In Sao Paulo, a drug selling point is not common. That is why the policy has difficult to repress this market. When the police arrests a person from that sector, the activity continues for the others. Furthermore, drug prices remain very low, almost decreasing if we consider Brazilian inflation. This reduces the attraction of, the, of competitors. Still, the criminal organization makes big profits because they employ many people. In this sense, the mass arrest of people works as a kind of recruitment of more workers to the criminal group. First, because they command the prisons in Sao Paulo, set the rules and discipline criminals. Second, because the group maintains a business structure. They rotate positions and workers, they promote good employees, provide career paths, they provide financial resources to the family of members who are imprisoned. In addition, they offer other benefits, uh, such as lawyers and other, type, other types of supports. This makes joining the group very attractive to young traffickers. In addition to security, there is a social status and prestige of the group in the poor neighborhoods. This is because they organize a series of local conflicts through, uh, through the work of the discipliner, someone who is uh, responsible for dealing with local issues and avoiding the po policy. It had a very intense impact on the drop in homicides in Sao Paulo. 
They say that is for peace that the command makes war. At the same time, at the same time that part of the population respects and benefits from the peace promoted by the PCC. Another part of the population is frightened by the expansion and growth of organ organized, organized crime. This generates political impacts not only in Sao Paulo, but throughout Brazil. One much observed is the growth of penal populism. With that, violent solutions, speeds that banalize and violate human rights and are supported by unscientific justifications that promote punitiveness, gain strength in the country. On the other hand, a series of economic aspects linked to underdevelopment remain hiding. I highlight the increase in unemployment, especially among poor youth and economic inequality as the main problems in Sao Paulo and in Brazil as a whole. A whole. The informality of the labor market and the change in the most recent labor legislation, which made the rules more flexible and intensified the exploitation of workers, is another problem that should be highlighted. These issues reveal the Brazilian economic contest. In my study, it was very clear that drug prohibition policies and the repression of the work of traffickers is very targeted at poor populations. This puni punitive work does not Oceana, happen in uh, sorry, isolation. Uh, so this is uh, Leo, the moderator. Uh, please, if you I can, yeah. <laughs> yes, so please uh, wrap <laughs> up uh, in the next uh, one to two minutes. So uh, we will have uh, some time for Q&A. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. OK. It takes place in a contest uh, where organized crime manages prisons and resolves conflicts better than the state does. Therefore, part of the success of organized crime is due to good management. Another part, their success is due to uh, socioeconomic issues. So I point out here some considerations that do not sound so obvious in the fight against organized crime. First, criminal organizations succeed in their own business because they have innovative and creative skills and capabilities. Second, criminal organizations do not operate out of the contest. The environment and the economic, social, and political contest reveal a lot about the resources that are made available to crime. In the sense, I reinforce the importance of reviewing the war on drugs policy as a way of reducing financing income uh, to these criminal agents, as well as promoting socioeconomic development. In some cases, opting to join a crime organization may be an individual's choice. In other, it may be the only option. Therefore, governments cannot only direct efforts to fight organized crime. They must strive to promote 
social justice and citizenship so that the lawful and formal life is more attractive than criminal activity. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Tatiana, for your wonderful uh, presentation uh, on the uh, case study uh, based on the uh, 170 course sentences. Well, that's, that is uh, a lot of analysis that you're, you're doing. All right, uh, we have roughly 11 minutes for Q&A. And so far, I do not see any questions coming in. I have some questions, so um, I will just go ahead and ask. And in the meantime, well, the audience, um, well, everyone, well, just feel free to send in any questions that you would like to ask. So uh, first of all, for, uh, for Matthew, uh, thank you very much for your presentation again. And you talked about the, um, the drug trafficking, marijuana issue in Coca, Colombia, and uh, the youth life uh, is quite um, so uh, entering into uh, risks and to be vulnerable in this sense. So I was wondering, because for younger people, they use a lot of like social media, uh, like cell phones to communicate. So uh, what do you see from uh, this end? So uh, the drug trafficking, the stories of, and the stories between the drug, drug trafficking, the cases that you see, and the stories of those uh, youths in terms of uh, like using social media and uh, like any online platforms. That's my question. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Yeah, well, uh, social media is not, um, in this particular region, is not uh, a major uh, pastime, let's say. Um, such high levels of poverty, uh, it's very uncommon for these, for the young people involved um, in the study to, to have access to mobile phones or to have um, social media accounts. Um, but I think, you know, coming back to the idea of risk that you, you mentioned at the beginning as well, I think the whole point, um, or one of the objectives of, of, of the study really, uh, or one that kind of emerged anyway, was the, the image of risk, the, the, the idea that we have of, of, of children at risk um, is very different. And this is something as well that emerged talking to, to youth workers and, and teachers and community leaders, you know, if they, if they get out their list of risk factors for children that become involved in youth, it's, it's you know, it's children that have uh, families issues at home, children that, that, that perhaps don't attend school, children that don't perform well at school. Um, but that profile has kind of uh, changed in this context anyway, because these were all young people that do attend school. They perform quite well at school. Uh, they want to perform well at school. They are dedicated to their studies. Um, and I think one of the most interesting things that was that this kind of part-time work uh, in drug trafficking was to fund further study. They want to go to university, but they understand that because of the socioeconomic circumstances that they live in, um, that likelihood is, is you know, it, it's, it's, it's not very realistic um, because of, because of the, the, the situation they're in. And so they're looking for, for options to, to improve their chances and, and criminality is, is seen as one of those possible uh, solutions. Uh, so I think, you know, 
that's why I talk about agency because these are young people that have you know a foot in the in the in the underworld if you like and as well as a foot in the in in the upper world but the danger is of obviously as we know um that the, their involvement in the kind of criminal life in the criminal underworld becomes more and more exploitative and they get pulled more and more um, or get pulled further and further in and I'm not sure that that was always something that was uh, something they were aware of. Thank you very much. Thank you, Matthew, for your uh, answers to uh, my question. And well, definitely, I I also see the uh, the uh, increasing risks for those uh, young people in Coca uh, Colombia. I did not. I'm. I was not aware the uh, the poverty issue is just is is at the uh, very high serious level there. So uh, thank you for. Uh, like providing this uh, new new knowledge to me. Uh, my next question goes to Maria, and you mentioned about uh, the weaknesses uh, in the uh, Hela market, uh, at which attract terrorists. So, uh, uh, how about the law enforcement effort in uh, combating uh, the Hela market uh, in Brazil? Uh, the fort is huge. The problem is that the country is huge. It retires. Uh, bigger than Europe, so uh, and it, it became Brazil became a big uh, hub for smuggling cocaine to Europe. So it's really hard to stop this flow of drugs uh, leaving the country. Uh, the other problem is that uh, since we are talking about uh, religious certifications, they don't belong to the official documents that uh, uh, meat exporters need to present to, present, uh, uh, to the health authorities. So for example, it's very hard to find records of uh, the halal certification body that certifi that, that, certifi that, that certify that kind of, uh, that specific uh, uh, cargo of meat. So I think that we are at the beginning we also need, and this is a problem not only uh, from Brazil, but everywhere, of a better um, education of law enforcement, because we have organized crime experts and we have terrorist experts. Actually, uh, we are in a moment uh, of history where uh, drug and terrorist, crime and terrorism are matching very well and they're taking advantage one of the other. So we need a different uh, expertise, uh, more, uh, more, um, more, uh, more larger than uh, the expertise that we have today. So that's my, I have a question if I can to Matthew, because I went to Colombia uh, to cover the peace talk. And as you know, unfortunately, uh, Colombia is unfamous for the child soldiers. Okay, so my question is how this heavy legacy, which is also an ethic legacy, um, interfere in the people that uh, you researched, in the story that you researched, and the child, uh, the children that you focused on? Thank you. Yeah, it's an interesting question because um, the, the recruitment or the, the force recruitment of children and young people is something that is is has been rising ever since ever since the the peace accords of twenty sixteen, um, and and is increasing uh, year on year. 
according to, to the figures. And one of the one of the uh, area, areas with the highest uh, numbers is is where we were working as well, um, and that's why you know these young people separated themselves um, from that. They you know they said we are not child soldiers. Um, what we are doing is you know we're working in, in in an economy that is basically the economy that that our local community um, survives on. Uh, we're not joining a, a rebel armed group. We're just moving something around, um, and you know we're doing it because of survival. We don't have guns. Um, we're not. We don't have an ideological cause. We're not doing it because we believe in something. We're doing it because this is basically the only source of of employment that we have to try and make a a future for ourselves. But but I, yeah, I think that was important because um, for them it was important for them to separate that from the kind of legacy of, of child soldiering that is, is still very, very much of the, you know, very much part of life in, in Colombia, but in that, specifically in that zone. Thank you. Thank you very much. And then we now have two minutes left. And I think I, it's time for me to conclude our panel. I would like to thank you again, all the panelists, for your participation and for your presentations. I truly enjoyed uh, your presentations and the content. And I also enjoyed the uh, discussions that we had uh, in this panel. And also I, I would like to uh, thank you for the audience, uh, for your participation. And I hope you enjoy our discussion and presentation. Also, uh, I wish you all uh, enjoy the rest of the of the conference. So it's uh, quite late here in Washington, DC. And I think I will stay quite late. I'll stay up quite late until tomorrow morning. So I'll see how it goes. All right. I wish you a pleasant uh, evening, pleasant morning. And that's the end of our panel. Thank you all and have a great day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the OC24 podcast. For more talks, have a look at the podcast feed on whichever platform you use. There are loads more to listen to. Video versions of these talks are also available on the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime YouTube channel. If you would like to share these talks around, we ask that you use the hashtag OC24 and let us know what you think. The 24-hour conference on global organised crime is brought to you by the European Consortium of Political Research Standing Group on Organised Crime, the Centre for Information and Research on Organised Crime, the International Association for the Study of Organised Crime, and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. For more information, head over to oc24.globalinitiative.net. This has been the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. Thanks for listening.